All right, so this will um, weed out the uh, football fans from the non-football fans, but um, if I were to do this, what, nom- what name comes to mind? All right, good. I knew somebody would know that. All right, Tim Tebow. So, Tim Tebow, uh, earlier this month, was at a um, a gathering in Kansas called Kansans for Life, and he made this statement. He said, I would rather be known for saving babies than winning Super Bowls. I'd rather be known for saving babies than for, saving, than for winning Super Bowls. You are going to be hard-pressed to find many NFL quarterbacks or former NFL quarterbacks who would say something like that. But the truth is, is that in my mind, Tim Tebow is not best known for saving babies. Tim Tebow is best known for his uncompromising love for Jesus Christ. Without a shadow of a doubt. That's why whenever he scored a touchdown, he knelt in the end zone. And it became a mockery. You know, some people see that and it sort of became almost his brand. But it started off as a mockery. It actually resulted in the fact that he was not able to continue his job because he couldn't get a contract with teams because they called him a distraction because his faith was lived out loud. That's the kind of people that we want to be. But I want to ask a question as we get into uh, Ephesians chapter 1. I actually want to ask three questions. Why is it that Christians, so many Christians, are weak-kneed when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why is that? And why is it that so many Christians are powerless when it comes to temptation? I mean, the temptation which uh, wraps itself around you, which is like a snare that easily entangles you. Why is it that so many Christians are powerless when it comes to that kind of temptation? Why is it that so many Christians are timid when it comes to persecution that happens because of their faith? Tonight, as we look at the end of Ephesians 1, I hope to answer those three questions. Over the last few weeks, if you've been here, you've known that we have been unpacking and we've been uh, tearing apart this wonderful prayer of the Apostle Paul that we see starting in verse 15, going through the end of the chapter. Uh, We've labored here, and the reason for doing this is because we want to infuse a god centered a God-exalting vision for prayer for our own lives. Uh, We want to be people that move beyond, Lord, bless so-and-so because she is in such-and-such a situation. We want to move past those general generic prayers to what Paul is helping uh, us see, how he prayed for other Christians, how that we could as well model that in our prayer lives. And as we've unpacked this prayer... We have seen several things, and so let me just remind you of where we've been thus far. Uh, we have seen that Paul, first of all, thanked God. He, didn't, he said he didn't cease to thank God, and the reason you thank anybody for anything is because you are responsible, and he thanked God for the Ephesians' faith and love for all the saints, meaning that apart from God's work in their life. No one would believe. No one would love other Christians. We wouldn't have anything to do with one another. We would find 
another reason to gather with other people, but it certainly wouldn't be because of Christ unless God had done it. And so he thanked God. We also saw that he not only thanked God, but that he prayed specific things. And the goal of that prayer was that the Ephesian Christians would perceive things that are true of them. Not, he didn't pray so much that they, would, that they would gain these three things, but that they would realize they already possessed them. And those three things were that they would know the hope of their calling. The word know there is actually better translated to perceive, meaning to understand what's true. It's been, it's been there the whole time. I just want you to see it for what it is, and that is the hope of your calling. The second thing he said he wanted them to perceive is that, that, that they are the glorious, the, the glorious riches, riches of God's inheritance in them, in the saints. And then the third thing was the immeasurably great power towards believers. And that's where we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, but he said that these things happen in the knowledge of God. Look in verse 16. He says, he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know or you may perceive in those three things I just mentioned. But it's in the knowledge. Remember, what's, can anybody tell me what that Greek word is? I've used it many times over the last few weeks. The what? Apparently, I need to say it again. The epigenosco. It's the experiential knowing of something. It's not knowing about God. It's knowing Him. It's, it's the knowing that you have where you're sitting across from someone over coffee or over a meal and you're having back and forth interaction. That's epigenosco. It's not knowing facts about an individual. And that is the, that is the realm... The knowing God that all of these blessings are revealed to Christians. But tonight, I want us to look in and focus in what Paul develops here at the end of this chapter. That, that they, the Ephesian Christians, and we Christians today would know the power that we have. And so our primary text is verses 20-23 to of Ephesians chapter 1. But I want to remind you briefly of verse 19 when he says, what is the, he wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. I don't know if you remember this, but Paul digs into the Greek thesaurus and tries to grab as many different words that refer to power of some kind in order to make his point that Christians have incredible power at our disposal. John MacArthur says it this way, the first word that Paul uses is dunamis, which means inherent power. We get the word dynamite from there. MacArthur goes on and says his second word, energeia, from which we get energy, means operative power. The third word, kratos, means ultimate power. The fourth word, iscus, means endowed power. And what Paul is saying at, MacArthur says, is there is power, power, everywhere you cut it, and it belongs to you. That's what we have. Now the question is, why don't we live that way? 
Why don't we live that way? That is a critical question that, it, that, it, that this prayer brings to the forefront. Paul describes the power as the immeasurable greatness. Remember the hyperbolon megathos from which we get hyperbole and mega stuff, mega mind, mega sharks, and all those things you see on this. This is what Paul is trying to drive home. And this power is part of the riches that you and I possess in Christ. Now, normal people, humble people, don't typically think of themselves in terms of hyperbolon megathos. Exceedingly great. Who here wants to stand up and say, I am exceedingly great? Jana does. Alright, good. Good for you, Jana. You're the only one who's right. Um, <laughs> don't take this wrong. <laughs> Normal people don't say that about themselves. Don't take that wrong. We don't use those adjectives about us because it seems arrogant and proud. However, all three things that Paul prays for the Christians to know, it is this one that he elaborates. The hyperbolon megathos power that we have. And he elaborates them by connecting them with Jesus' resurrection. So let's read verses 20 to 23 one more time. According to the working of His great might, verse 20, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age in the one which is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, <clears throat> the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Paul connects the power the exceedingly great power that Christians have to Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the effect that that had. But let me say that 2,000 years later, death continues to be the most frightening thing that humans have to stare face to face, stand face to face and stare in the eye. In the year 2000, Michael Jackson spoke about wanting to cryogenically freeze himself in order to preserve him for a day when they might be able to revive him so that he could live forever. He died in 2009, never having been cryogenically frozen. In 2013, the Forbes magazine wrote, ran an article entitled, The First Person to Live to 150 Has Already Been Born. That was 2013. 2017, Norway Today article says, Scientists think the world's first 200-year-old person has already been born. 
And then in 2018, believe it or not, Carrie, UK's independent newspaper said, there is someone alive today who will live to be a thousand years old. You believe that? Me either. A thousand years old. With all of the brightest minds and the most uh, uh, advanced technology and the powerful backing of multi-millionaires in the world and the wildest fantasies about how long people might live, they all realize there's still an end. They may live to a thousand, but they won't make two thousand. They may live to 150, but they won't make 200. Death still comes knocking. And this is the one fear that all humanity has to deal with, except for us. Except for us. Because death to us is not to be frightening. For us, we can look at the historical event of God raising Jesus from the dead, not as simply some interesting artifact of history, but as the very ground of our faith. This same apostle who wrote Ephesians wrote to another church, 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, the, he says this, two hypothetical scenarios. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If... And then three verses later, he says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If, but the good news is he says, but Christ has been raised from the dead. So the resurrection gives us a hope for eternal life. So we don't have to fear death. But what about this life? What does the resurrection have to do with this life before we go and meet our Maker? What does it mean for us now? And this is what we see in Ephesians chapter 1. So let's unpack Paul's explanation. This is going to be close to a miracle. That's okay. The effect of the resurrection goes in two directions. And they are very close. And I'm telling you, I am asking you to don't phase out because this is going to be detailed and this is going to be, but it is so important for you to see the connections because it is powerful. It goes in two directions. The effect of the resurrection and Jesus' exaltation and the effect of the resurrection with the believer's expectation. So Jesus' exaltation and the believer's expectation. These two are connected connected. Paul deals with them separately, so let's look at them separately. So let's talk about the resurrection and Jesus' exaltation. Paul mentions five things. The first one is Jesus' place of exaltation. Look in chapter 1, verse 20. And it says, "...that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." 
Jesus's, the fruit of Jesus' resurrection rising from the dead, the fruit of that was Jesus' ascension when 40 days later He was lifted up into heaven and He is now seated since that time for 2,000 years according to our time and space continuum. He has been there at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. In the Hebrew mind, the right hand was the place of honor. It was the place of the co-regent. It was the one who reigned beside the king. So Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God is the offspring of the resurrection. But it's also the place from which Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. You remember right before He was ascended, we see this in Acts chapter 1. He says, wait here. Don't leave the city. Because you will receive something from Me. We'll talk about that in a little bit. It was the place from which Jesus Christ sent what we need most to answer those three questions I asked at the beginning of the message. Why Christians are so weak-kneed when it comes to evangelism. Why Christians are so powerless when it comes to our temptations. Why Christians are so timid in the face of persecution. The real power comes from Jesus' place of exaltation at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. The second thing is that we see is Jesus' exaltation over spiritual powers. Look at the first part of verse 21. He says that, uh, that Jesus was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He was far above all of those and every name that is named. Now, two of these words, uh, authority and power, are used five chapters later in chapter 6 referring to the spiritual forces that Christians wage war against. Remember, he says, we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against forces of authorities and powers and principalities. Two of these words that Paul mentions right here, he uses explicitly to talk about spiritual opposition. So Jesus is exalted not just a little bit above demonic, oppressive spiritual forces, but far above. Far above. Jesus is exalted far above those spiritual powers. But He says He's also exalted far above every name that is named. Now when you hear that, every name that is named, does that remind you of another, of another Bible verse? From Philippians, good job. From Philippians chapter 2. So hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 1 and turn to the right. One book, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Talks about the humility of Jesus coming in the human form, humbling self, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. And then verse 9 of Philippians 2 says, Therefore, therefore, 
Therefore what? Because he humbled himself and became a human and went to die on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See that? He uses that in Ephesians 1. Anything that can be named, Jesus is far above. But look at what he says in verse 10 of Philippians 2. So that there's a reason that Jesus is exalted above every name that is named. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is talking about not just humans should bow, but demons and angels and principalities and powers. All of us should bow. And the sad fact is that sin has so corrupted us that we do not bow when we hear that name. We oftentimes stiffen our neck and harden our heart, but we should bow when we hear the name of Jesus because Jesus, who was eternal God for our salvation, became man, humbled Himself, took the form of a servant, and even went to the cross. Therefore, His name is exalted and we should bow. And every tongue, verse 11, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus exalted above, far above spiritual powers. Jesus' resurrection establishes His authority and His power and His dominion is preeminent over all other things in this universe. That's the second thing we see. The third thing we see about Jesus' resurrection and His exaltation is the length of Jesus' exaltation. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 21b. He says that He is far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the One to come. What that means is, He'll always be sovereign. Always be. There's never going to be a time that Jesus Christ is not Lord over everything. You're crazy not to submit your lives. We are crazy. I ought to make sure that that doesn't sound condemning. We are insane to not submit our lives to Jesus Christ. He is forever going to reign. The fourth thing that we need to know from this prayer is that Jesus' exaltation is over everything, including those opposed to us, opposed to him. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. And he put all things under his feet. Now, this is very important. I've got to take a little bit of time here, which means we'll probably go over, but you're used to that. Putting everything under his feet, that has two meanings in the Bible, okay? Something under, just take a wild guess. I want to just see how, what you think. When you hear someone say that it is, this is under his feet, what is that, what comes to mind? Conqueror, okay. What else? What's, I under control. Great. That means he has authority over creation and he is victorious over his enemies. That's exactly right. Let me show you where, I, where we see this in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 8, David, speaking of the 
unworthy of the unworthiness of people of humanity before God. Remember, he says, you have made them a little lower than the angels. Remember that? In Psalm chapter 8, he says, but you have given him dominion over the work of your hands, having put all things under his feet. So as humanity, starting with our first father, Adam, we were given authority, dominion, rule over this. That's one idea of being under feet, but that, of something being under your feet. You have authority over that. Sadly, humanity has corrupted that in the way we uh, manage that authority, sadly. You see that all over the place in newspapers, on websites, whatnot, but we no doubt were given that dominion. The second thing is, which was mentioned, is that when something is under your feet, it is a sign of victory. The Roman generals, when they would conquer another army, one way that they would show it is they would take the other general and step on his neck as a sign of showing they were victorious. It was a sign of humiliation for the opponent, but it was a sign of victory to the conquering king. Listen to what Solomon says to the king of Tyre, whose name was Hiram, in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 3. He's talking to Hiram about his father David, who Hiram knew well. He said, you'll remember David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him. Remember? Remember that? In the Old Testament, David, King David, he wanted to build a house for the worship of God, but he couldn't do that because he was fighting battle after battle after battle. Well, Solomon's now saying this to the king of Tyre, and he says, you remember that because the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until, 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 3, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Until David was victorious, they were not going to be able to build a house to worship. David's desire was to establish the worship of Yahweh to spread the knowledge of Him throughout the earth. But it had to wait till Solomon to build that house. Here's what I want you to see about this. Jesus, in His resurrection, Jesus in His ascension to the right hand of God, Jesus in His incarnation, becoming one of us, becomes a better Adam. Where Adam failed to have dominion over creation without sin, Jesus succeeded. Jesus is the greater Adam. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus becomes the better David as well. Because David conquered his human adversaries, but Jesus conquered Satan, sin. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, the last enemy to be vanquished is even death. 
So he becomes the greater David who defeats all of his enemies. And through that victory, I'm sorry, though that victory has been established by our Lord, battles still wage. The, 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 the war is won, but the battles still rage. Which leads us to the fifth thing that I want to see in Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. And that Jesus is exalted over His people. Verse 22b and 23. It says that He has gave Him His head over all things to who? The church. Which is His body. The fulfillment or the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Let me just be brief, try to get this, the point across, is that we are the body of Christ. As Christians, we are the body of Christ. And part of what that means is that His feet belong to us. We possess the feet through which Jesus, in His resurrection authority, reigns supreme over creation and establishes victory over His enemies. Let me say that again because this is the point of this prayer. Because remember, Paul says, I want you to know the power, the exceedingly great power that you have And then He talks about the resurrection and then He comes back to us as the body of Christ. So you see see how we are the bookend when He talks about the resurrection? So this is the point of this prayer. This part of the prayer. As the body of Christ, we possess the feet through which Jesus in His resurrection authority reigns supreme over creation and establishes victory over his enemies. That's why in Romans chapter 16, Paul says this, encouraging the believers to persevere through divisive teaching, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Under your feet. Jesus is exalted among His people, the church, filling us all as His body in order to accomplish His purposes in this world. That's why, friends, you and I need to know, we need to perceive what is true about us That's what this prayer is all about. We need to perceive what is true about us as believers. That we have a hope of our calling. We need to perceive the glorious riches of God's inheritance of us. That's our identity. God longs to commune with us in eternity. And then thirdly, in this life, We have an immeasurably great power as we believe. That same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and exalted Him to the right hand and everything we've talked about. 
So what should we expect? What is the resurrection and our expectation? The power of the resurrection exalted Jesus to such an extent that He would become the head. The leader, the authority, the, 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 the general that's calling out over a worldwide band of called out ones. The ecclesia. People that Alexis in Philadelphia is seeking to reach from a Muslim background. People that Emily and possibly her future husband Andrew want to reach in the Middle East from a Kurdish background. People in Senegal who've never heard the Gospel. People in China today who are terrified that this virus is going to wipe out their whole city. People in Mexican villages who are so enwrapped with Catholicism and the, and the rituals that they can't see the simplicity of the Gospel. People in Indonesia who are literally just trying to survive and just are Muslim because they've always been Muslim and nobody's told them anything differently. People in Congo. People in Tanzania. People on Pearl Street. People on King Street. People on Madison. Teenagers who go to McCaskey. People who sit in the cubicle next to you. Students at Bible college have been playing the game and are only there because their parents want them there. People that come into your coffee shop. Students at Lancaster Mennonite who've only been there just because their parents have a faith, but they themselves don't have a faith. This is why. Because Jesus is calling out. That's the church. The called out ones. He is calling out people to Himself. And He's going to be the head of that people. The one who tells us what to do. And He says, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Go and make disciples. As His body, we are the expression of this life in the world. You are not simply a Christian. You're just not a Christian. You're part of this interconnected body. How you live, your life affects me. And vice versa. Our choices affect how Jesus Christ is viewed in our city and in our world and on our campus and in our workplace. Together, together we carry out God's mission in this world.
So why are Christians so weak-kneed when it comes to evangelism? When in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why is it that Christians are so timid in the face of persecution when it says in Philippians chapter 3 that Paul says, I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection and share in His suffering, becoming like Him in death. I want to know Him that way. So why are we so timid when we have the power of the resurrection that allows us to stand stiff-necked in persecution in the face of it? Why are we so prone to give in to temptation when it says in Romans chapter 8, Verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The body may be dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Jesus is righteousness. So why are we? We are that way. And this is why Paul prays it. Because we don't get it. We don't get it. We don't know what we've been given in Christ. So that's why it took so much time to explain this prayer to us. So we would get it. There is no reason for us to give in to temptation. There is no reason for us not to be bold in our witness. There is no reason to get cowardly in the midst of persecution. Because we have resurrection power. We're going to sing about it in just a minute. So, conclusion as Bill makes his way forward. First, if you don't know Jesus tonight, I just want to say it as clearly as possible. There is nothing that you can do to overcome sin in your life. You can manage it, but you can't overcome it. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, you need to come to Jesus. Tonight, you need to submit your life in faith to the One who came, lived a perfect life, and laid down His life for you on a cross. Stop resisting Him. He loves you. Give your life to Him. Unreservedly to Him. If that's you as an unbeliever tonight, come to faith in Christ. You'll never regret it. Believers, know what you have. I'm not going to preach the message again. Know what you have. You have everything you need for life and godliness, Peter tells us. And the second thing, Christians, and this is why it's a prayer. Let's pray this for each other. Because we forget light. We're going to walk out this door and something is going to create anxiety and you're going to forget. You're going to forget all that you have in Christ. You're going to forget the hope that you have. You're going to forget how much God thinks of you. You're going to forget the power that you have. And so we need to pray for one another that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge and the epigenosco of Him. The experiential knowledge of Him. And so we as believers, let's get up tomorrow and know Him. Let's know Him. And in knowing Him, remember how much we've been given.
Let's sing Resurrection Power. <laughs>